thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here again after quite a few years. Uh, you've noticed my topic is uh, the religion of love revisited. Uh, the mic is, is that better? All right. Now, I take it for granted that Ibn Arabi and Rumi, not to mention countless other teachers, Muslim and non-Muslim, always looked at human beings as works in progress. They wrote books and poetry with the goal of helping those who wanted to learn how to become human in the full sense of the word. Many of them would have been happy to call the process of becoming human the religion of love. Now given that this religion, this religion of love, has been claimed by both Ibn Arabi and Rumi, I thought it would be useful to review its basic tenets. Now no doubt the best known mention of the religion of love in Islamic literature comes in the line that was first brought to the attention of Western readers in 1911 when Reynold Nicholson published and translated Ibn Arabi's short divan, Tajman al-Ashwaq, the interpreter of yearnings. The verse, of course, it's on the website and what, whatnot. I practice the religion of love wherever its camels turn their faces. This religion is my religion and my faith. Now, Rumi says, Rumi says similar things in several verses. One example can suffice. My religion is to live through love. Life through spirit and head are my shame. Is my shame, excuse me. <clears throat> now, Ibn Ari's poem, that line, has been cited by numerous scholars and devotees to illustrate his universalism. As Nicholson says in his edition, in the preface to his edition of the Divan, this particular poem expresses, I quote, the Sufi doctrine that all ways lead to the one God. Nonetheless, the moment we try to situate this line of poetry within the historical context generally, and Ibn Arabi's teachings specifically, it becomes apparent that Nicholson may have been jumping to conclusions. Certainly, many of those who have quoted the poem over the subsequent years have had no idea what Ibn Arabi was talking about. Now, it is worth noting that the religion of love, Deen al-Hub, in the poem, is not part of Ibn Arabi's standard vocabulary, even though he often talks about religion, Deen, and love, hope. But he does not use this expression, the religion of love, in his enormous Futuhat al-Makiyya. Nonetheless, when we look at his teachings about religion and about love, and we combine them with his own commentary on this poem, it is not too difficult to see what he had in mind. Then we will discover that he stands in a long line of teachers who spoke in similar terms. <clears throat> now, to support this contention, I want to look at a few earlier examples of the use of this phrase or its equivalents. I will cite passages from three authors, all of whom wrote in Persian. Ibn Arabi was certainly not familiar with the works in question, which simply shows that the religion of love was part of the ambiance of Islamic civilization. The first of these authors is Ahmad Sam'ani, who died in the year 1140, 25 years before Ibn Arabi's birth. He left us with what is probably the longest and most comprehensive explanation of divine love in the Persian language. 
though ostensibly it is a commentary on the most beautiful names of God. The second author is Rashiduddin Maybudi, a contemporary of Sama'ani, who wrote a Persian commentary on the Quran. The third is Abdullah Ansari, a famous theologian, a Sufi, who died in the year 1088, 100 years before Ibn Arabi began to write. Among Ansari's many books is the classic Arabic statement of the stages on the path to God, Manazal al-Sairi, the way stations of the travelers. This is one of a handful of books to which Ibn Arabi refers in his Futahat al-Makiyya. Ibn Arabi's direct disciple, Afifuddin Tilimsani, wrote a long commentary on it. Now, Ansari was also one of the greatest early masters of Persian prose. Uh, most famously, he wrote exquisite munajat, that is, whispered prayers. Now, the extensive literature on divine love in Arabic and Persian, before Ibn Arabi, by Ibn Arabi, and after them, deals with three basic themes, each of which was commonly discussed in terms of one main reference point derived from the Quran and the Hadith. The first theme is that love permeates the three realities that are of human concern, namely God, the universe, and the human self. The Quranic verse that is typically cited to show this reads, he loves them and they love him. This is understood to mean that God is both the lover of human beings and their beloved. Moreover, it implies that God loves human beings by definition and that human beings love God by definition. Now this verse is typically read as a statement of Tawheed, that is, the assertion of divine unity that lies at the heart of Islamic thought and practice. As you know, one of the many ways in which Ibn Arabi explained Tawheed was in terms of wujud, that is, being or existence. Being was so central to his teachings that in later times, his position came to be summarized as wahdatul wujud, the unity of being, even though he himself never used this expression. Of course, he did talk about God in terms of both unity and being. But there was nothing new about that. It had been going on for centuries, since everyone understood that there is no true being but the being of the one God. A basic implication of God's monopoly on true being is that we as creatures cannot claim to have any existence of our own. This is a major theme in both Ibn Arabi and Rumi not to mention the three earlier authors whose names I just mentioned. Uh, let me give you a small quote from Sam'ani who summarizes this discussion. After coming into existence, the creatures are just as captive to God's power as they were before existence. When they are in non-existence, they are captive to power. If he wants, he brings them into existence. And if he does not want, he does not. Once they exist, they are still captive to his power. If he wants to keep them, he does. And if he does not want, he does not. After their existence, they will be exactly what they were in the state of non-existence. And he having bestowed existence, is exactly what he was before bestowing existence. So, the existence of creatures right now is similar to non-existence, and their subsistence has the constitution of annihilation. It is commonly said in both Sufi 
and philosophical writings that the cause of our existence, no matter how feeble it may be, is God's love for us. God's love is eternal, which is to say that it lies outside of time. Hence, it has nothing to do with us and everything to do with him. In one of many discussions of God's eternal love, Samani writes as follows. In the beginningless, the approval of he loves them was busy with they love him without your intervention. Today you have being, but you are far from the midst. By the right of the real, the food of hearts and souls is his being. Otherwise, no one would ever find subsistence. Tomorrow, resurrection in other words, tomorrow when all find subsistence in that abode, they will not find it through their own being. They will find it through the food of his being. If someone in this abode were to reach the stage where his food is the contemplation of, his, of God's being, death would be forbidden to him. And sorry, uh, the author of the Whispered Prayers, among other things, often makes a similar point uh, in, in these prayers. This is the following. It's quite typical. Oh God, I am happy that you were there at first. And I was not. Your work took effect, and mine did not. You put forth your worth, and you sent your messenger. Oh God, whatever you have given us without our seeking, do not ruin it with what we deserve. <laughs> whatever good you have done for us, do not cut it off because of our defect. Whatever you have made without our worthiness, do not separate it from us by our unworthiness. O oh God, do not bring to fruit what we ourselves have planted. Keep blights away from what you planted for us. Now, in short, the first tenet of the religion of love is that God loves human beings unconditionally outside of any causality whatsoever. Nothing we can do has any effect on this eternal love. Now, as soon as we turn to the second half of the verse on mutual love, they love him, first half he loves them, they love him, we see that man's love for God is not as straightforward as God's love for man. Many, if not most people, show no signs of loving God or of recognizing the fact that they do, in fact, love him. This is because the predominant char characteristic of Adam's children is forgetfulness and ignorance. If not, why did God bother sending 124,000 prophets? The number is always cited, especially in these texts. In short, even though man loves God by ontological necessity, we cannot not love God. People are not necessarily aware of the true object of their own love. As a result, they end up becoming dispersed in love for this and love for that. One of the many causes of this dispersion is alluded to in a famous hadith that is frequently cited in the literature of love. God is beautiful, and he loves beauty. People were created in God's image, so they, like him, love beauty. The Quran tell us that, tells us that God made beautiful all that he created. As a result, all things are beautiful, which is to say that all things are the objects of divine love. Or again, the Quran says, he formed you, so he made your forms beautiful. God created people in his own image, so they have beautiful forms. Necessarily, the beauty of their forms attracts God's love as well as the love of others. Now, despite this, created beauty can only be the radiance of the uncreated 
divine beauty. So when people love, and they cannot not love, they necessarily love the reflected beauty of God. Rumi in particular highlights this theme, frequently discussing it in terms of the contrast between real love, which is love that sees through appearances and focuses on the real being, and metaphorical love, which is love that is caught up in superficial and transitory beauty. In one verse, for example, Rumi addresses God like this. The universe is a mark of the comeliness of your beauty. The goal is your beauty. The rest is pretext. In a passage often quoted in the secondary literature, I'm sure you've heard it, but let me remind you, Ibn Arabi makes the same point by explaining that everyone, and indeed everything, loves God. I quote, none but God is loved in the existent things. It is he who is manifest within every beloved to the eye of every lover, and there is no existent thing that is not a lover. So the universe is all lover and beloved, and all of it goes back to him. No one loves anyone but his own creator, but people are veiled from him by love for Zainab, Suad, Hin, Layla, this world, money, position, and everything else loved in this world. Now the general human inability to perceive what it is that they truly love leads us to the second basic tenet of the religion of love. It is that although God loves human beings unconditionally, he also loves them Conditionally. In the first case, he loves everyone equally, and in fact, he loves everything in the universe because he created everything beautiful, and he loves beauty. This is why Samani writes, when you say he loves them, your own shirt collar says, you've got nothing over me. In other words, God certainly does love you, but this fact gives you no advantage over shirts and rocks and trees because he loves everything else as well. Advantage and disadvantage, gain and loss, happiness and misery, these enter the picture only in terms of the second sort of love, which depends on your recognition of your own love for God. As long as you think that you love others, you will not be able to actualize true love. Now, in other words, the door to God's conditional love will open up only when people have understood the principle of divine unity, the fact that there is no beloved but God. At this point, they need to gather their wits about them and focus on love's true object. Achieving focus is not possible without the assistance of their beloved. So they must take recourse in the help that God has given in the form of prophecy and scripture. Hence, for Muslims, the road to actualize love for God and to make oneself worthy for his conditional love is to follow the prophet. The connection between love for God and following the prophet is made explicit in the second most commonly cited Quranic verse about love. Say, the Quran says, say, addressing Muhammad, Say, Muhammad, tell the people, if you love God, follow me. God will love you. Now, when we put these two verses together, the picture is clear. God loves you in any case, and the fruit of his love for you is that you exist and you are a lover of him. Your existence, however, does not guarantee the ultimate well-being of your soul. You need to acknowledge your actual situation as a lover. You must accept what is expected of any lover, which is to submit to the desires of the beloved. What your beloved wants from you is defined by the sunnah of the prophet. Now, the essential role of the prophet as intermediary explains why the literature on love, not least by any means, the writings of Ibn Arabi and Rumi, describes the prophet as the greatest beloved of God and the greatest lover of God. 
the most detailed and profound discussions of Muhammad as Logos in Islamic literature are found in the writings of Ibn Arabi and his followers. The point of these discussions is that Muhammad is God's first beloved and the universe itself was created for Muhammad's sake. Moreover, Muhammad is the perfect embodiment of love for God. So all those who want to love God need to follow his example. In one passage, Ibn Arabi summarizes the difference between God's unqualified and qualified love in terms of the human reception of divine blessings. These blessings come in the form of existence and all that it entails. He points out that God bestows blessings in two ways, without qualification and with qualification. That is, through creation itself and through divine guidance. Then he warns the seeker not to accept whatever God offers, but rather to accept only what comes by the intermediary of the prophet. I quote, God gives to his servants from himself and also on the hands of his messengers. When something comes to you from the hand of the messenger, take it without employing any scale. But when something comes to you from the hand of God, take it with a scale. For God is identical with every giver, but he has forbidden you to take every gift. Thus he says, quote, Quran, whatever the messenger gives you, take. Whatever he forgives you, forbids you. Whatever he forbids you, forego. Thus, your taking from the messenger is more profitable to you and better able to actualize your ultimate happiness. Your taking from the messenger is unqualified, but your taking from God is qualified. The messenger himself is qualified, but taking from him is unqualified. God is not qualified by any qualification, but taking from him is qualified. So consider how wonderful is this affair. <laughs> Typical of Nari, by the way. Now, in let me get some. In his commentary on the verse that Ibn Arabi just cited, Mabudi, our Quran, Persian Quran commentator, makes explicit that the verse is referring to qualified love. Uh, here, the verse again, whatever the messenger gives you, take. Whatever he forbids you, forego. Here's Mabudi explaining, God is saying, whatever drink comes to you from the auspicious hand of Muhammad, the Arab, the Hashemite prophet, take, for your life lies in that. Read the tablet that he writes, learn servanthood from his character traits, take seeking from his aspiration, put his sunnah to work, walk behind him in all states. The final goal of the traveling of the servants and the perfection of their states lies in my love. This is God speaking. In my love. And my love lies in following the sunnah and conduct of your prophet. Whoever walks straight in his tracks is in reality my friend. Say, if you love God, follow me. God will love you. Now, the notion that conditional divine love is the cause of ultimate human happiness brings us to the third tenet of the religion of love. The lover's goal is to achieve union with his beloved. The lover wants this for the obvious reason that he dwells in separation from God. The scriptural reference point here is a famous Hadith Qudsi uh, found in the Sahih of Bukhari. 
Ibn Arabi refers to this hadith more than any other saying of the Prophet. And he explains its meaning in countless passages. In short, the hadith says that when someone approaches God through good works and beautiful character traits, which are defined precisely by the Prophet's sunnah, then God will love that person. Then God says, now it's God's words, when I love him, I am the hearing with which he hears, the eyesight with which he sees, the hand with which he holds, and the foot with which he walks. So it is at this point that separation disappears and union is achieved. Now, in sum, the religion of love has three basic tenets. First, Tawheed. There is no true lover and no true beloved but God. Second, prophecy. The path of actualizing God's love lies in following prophetic guidance. Third, the return to the beloved. The lover's goal is to achieve union with his creator. Notice that these three tenets are nothing other than the three principles of Islamic faith, Tawheed, prophecy, and the return. What makes them pertain to the religion of love is the fact that they are expressed in the language of love. One of the reasons for using this language is that when these tenets are expressed in the abstract terms of theology, they sound rather distant from daily concerns. And it becomes difficult, perhaps, to understand their import. As a matter of fact, at least according to our authors, most believers simply accept the three principles on the basis of the say-so of the theologians. When it comes to love, however, everyone knows that love is not an issue for talk. The point is to experience love, not to engage in theoretical discussions. Perhaps others can think for you. We certainly take their word for all sorts of things in our daily lives. We let them think for us all the time, and I'm talking us. But no one can love for you. This is what Rumi is getting at in this poem and many others. Someone asked, what is it to be a lover? I replied, don't ask about these meanings. When you become like me, you'll see. When he calls you, You'll tell the tale. Now, given that the religion of love is rooted in the first principle of Islamic thought, the fact that there is no God but God, no being but the true being, no beloved but the true beloved, it follows that lovers see all things existing at the pleasure of their beloved. His lovers love him as he is, not as they imagine him to be, this means that they embrace their beloved in all his beauty and majesty, mercy and wrath, gentleness and severity. Hence, they experience constant ups and downs, all of them reflecting the joy of union and the pain of separation. Samani fleshes out some of the implications of the lover's ontological situation in this passage. In the religion of love, there must be both gentleness and severity, both caressing and melting, both attraction and killing, both making do and burning. There must be caresses so that a man may know the harshness of being taken to task, and there must be taking to task so that he may know the worth, the worth of caresses. When God's men carry the burden of caresses, they carry it while contemplating severity. When they carry the burden of severity, they carry it while seeing gentleness. Whenever anyone is nurtured in only one thing, he does not have the capacity to carry something else. If you put a dung beetle, which spends its days in stench, in the midst of roses, there is fear that it will be destroyed, for it has passed its days in stench and does not have the, the capital to carry the burden of fragrance. The angels 
were nurtured in gentleness. They never had the opportunity to carry the burden of severity. But the Adamites, the children of Adam, are the threshold of both gentleness and severity. He quotes the Sufi Sheikh, if you chastise me, I love you. And if you show mercy to me, I love you. That great man is saying, if you have mercy, I am your lover. And if you appoint for me a hundred thousand heart-piercing, liver-burning arrows, I am still your lover. True lovers accept the beloved's caresses and curses with equanimity. And hence they have no thought of pleasure or pain, paradise or hell. Lovers desire what the beloved desires. If the beloved desires to keep them in separation indefinitely, so be it. For lovers have no claim on what they love. The divine beauty, wisdom, compassion, gentleness. These are all gods. These are the exclusive possessions of the beloved. Samani explains. Those who step into this road do not do so for any cause, but rather for love. The petitioner does not come from the door, but rather from within the breast. They kick aside paradise and hell, and they step forth on the road, looking for compensation in the road of obedience is a fatal poison. If you were to walk on this road for a thousand years and your obedience was not accepted, and then it occurred to your mind that it should have been accepted, you would have been a status seeker. <laughs> you will not be a realizer in this road until you abandon your status with both the real and the creatures. Someone says, I don't want status with the creatures. I want status at the divine threshold. Do not seek for status either here or there. Bind up your waist and, like a man, find the broom of solitariness and disengagement. A thousand times a day, sweep this threshold of your own dreadful existence. If it should happen that you stay at the threshold for a thousand years, and then it is said to you, go, for you are not worthy of me, you will have been given your due. The crux of the love relationship is separation, which is our existential plight. It arises from the fact that God created us, thus giving us an illusory existence to which we passionately cling. What we really love is true existence, but illusory existence keeps us veiled from it. The resulting sense of separation drives all human endeavor. Our longing for union allows us to understand that we are not what we should be. That is, we are not fully human, and we must strive to become human. Without understanding the truth of utter separation, no one will make any progress on the religion of love. Rumi, among others, constantly comes back to the lover's plight. The very first line of his great mass, Navi, announces separation as the, as the theme of the book. Listen to the read as it complains, telling the tale of separation. Now, people frequently have the idea that if they love God, they will reap benefit. But this is self-interest, not love. Maybody alludes to the difference between the way most people approach religion and the path of the lovers when he writes, in the outward sharia, the outward shariat, the law, all is gentleness, benevolence, blessing, and caressing. In the sharia of love, all is severity, harshness, killing, and spilling blood. Elsewhere, he explains, you know, the imagery is a bit strong, admittedly. Rumi uses it all the time, this very harsh imagery. Elsewhere, Maybody explains what he has in mind in another passage. When people choose someone for friendship, it is their habit to want every ease for their friend and not to let stormy winds blow over him. The divine custom is contrary to this. 
whenever he chooses someone for friendship, he sends the drink of tribulation with the robe of love. When the rank of someone is higher in the station of love, his tribulation is greater. This is why the prophet said, Rumi often quotes this, surely the people most severely tried are the prophets, then the saints, then the next best, then the next best. Now, Samania often describes the plight of lovers in graphic terms. Terms, indeed, that were later mined by the poets. Attar Rumi come to mind immediately. In one long passage, a bit of which I'll give you, he writes as follows. Sometimes the ocean of trial begins to send up waves and the lover no longer has the capacity to bear it. He believes that he can repent of love in order to be delivered from the trial of his desires. But this belief is wrong. In the Sharia of love, repentance is folly, forced to seek a reprieve and to wish for a concession. He quotes a saying, Sufism is constraint without peace and severity, without mercy. O dervish, repentance is something that you acquire, but love is neither acquired nor connected with any cause. It sometimes happens that the beloved's beauty unveils to the lover the ruling properties of jealousy, along with guarding the eyes against glancing and gazing, or rather against thoughts and notions. Majesty demands that he abandon his own portion and share. He must choose the friend's desire over his own in separation and severity, withholding and rejection, restraint and repulsion. The burnt lover, willingly or unwillingly, repents of seeking for what he wants and looking at causes. Then God signs the fancy of yearning and the ardor of burning to his heart and liver. The lover is unable to bear it. He cannot go forth with patience and self-restraint. What a wonder is the lover in this state. What harshness he suffers with no mercy or favor. If he preserves his repentance, it is said, good for you, O weary man. And if he breaks it, it is said, oh, bravo, O covenant breaker. Now, Maybody describes something of the lover's suffering in his commentary on a Quranic verse that sets down the principle for retaliation, for wrongful death. O you who have faith, written for you is retaliation in the case of the slain. After explaining the outward meaning of the verse, he turns to its meaning in the religion of love. God is addressing the body, heart, and spirit. He is saying, O totality of the servant, if you want to step into the lane of love, first detach your heart from life and toss away everything you know about states and acts. For in the Sharia of love, your life will be taken as retaliation, and everything you know will be the wear guilt. Though more is needed, such is the Sharia of love. If you are the man for the work, enter. Otherwise, nothing will get done with self-love and defilement. Yes, it's a marvelous work, the work of love. It's a wonderful Sharia, the Sharia of love. Whenever someone is killed in the world, Retaliation or wear guilt is mandatory against the killer in the Sharia of love. Both retaliation and wear guilt are mandatory for the person killed. And Sari said, quoting one of his sayings, as, as Maywoody commonly does, and Sari said, How should I have known that there is retaliation for those killed by love? But when I looked, that was your, your tra transaction with the elect. How should I have known that love is sheer resurrection and that those killed by love should ask for wear guilt? Glory be to God. What work is this? What work? He burns some people. He kills some people. And no one burned has any regrets. No one killed turns away. Let me now come back to Ibn Arabi's understanding of the religion of love. First, we need to recall what he means by the word religion, deen. 
He explains that the Arabic word has three basic senses and that the first of these, inqiyad, acquiescence or obedience, is of particular relevance to the seeker of God. In chapter 8, beginning of chapter 8, in the Fasus of Hekem, he writes as follows, Religion consists of your acquiescence. The religion that comes from God is the Sharia to which you have acquiesced, for religion is acquiescence. The law is the Sharia that God has set down for you. Those who have the quality of acquiescing to that which God has set down are the ones who stand forth in the religion and who put it into practice. Now, in a passage in the Futuhat, describing the imam who leads the prayers, Ibn Arabi explains that people need to follow the imam only when the imam is fulfilling his function, not at other times. Then he says that this stands in stark contrast to following the prophet, since lovers must follow the prophet at all times. And he reminds us, it is only by this following that they open themselves up to God's love. Again, I quote, it is required to follow the imam so long as he is called the imam. When the name imam leaves him, it is not required to follow him. In contrast, the imamate of the messenger never disappears. So following him is required. Moreover, God is required, God is required to love those who follow him. Without doubt, God says, you have a beautiful exemplar in God's messenger. And he said to the prophet, say, if you love God, follow me. God will love you. When God loves his servant, he is all of his faculties and limbs, reference to the Hadith of Union, and the servant acts only with his own faculties and limbs. Hence, he acts only through God. Thus, he is protected when he acts, whether he is moving or resting. Now, in the famous poem, Ibn Arabi says, I practice the religion of love, wherever its camels turn their face, faces. He clearly means that he has acquiesced and submitted to the tenets of the religion of love and that he has stood forth in that religion and put it into practice. When we look at his commentary on this verse, it becomes clear that he is talking specifically about the path of following of the prophet. I quote from you know, Ibn Arabi's own commentary. Nicholson refers to this, but doesn't really translate it. Ibn Arabi says, I am alluding in this line to God's word, follow me, God will love you. This is why I call it the religion of love. I adhere to it so as to receive the prescriptions of my beloved with acceptance, contentment, love, and the elimination of hardship and burden in them, whatever they may be. This is why I say, wherever its camels turn their faces. In other words, whatever course they take, whether they are pleasing or displeasing, I am content with all of them. As for my words, again, his, his own verse, this religion is my religion and my faith. This means that in the view of those who adhere to, to him through him and who are commanded by him from the unseen, there is no religion higher than the religion that stands upon love and yearning. This is specific to the Mohammedans, for Muhammad, among all the prophets, had the station of love to perfection, even though he also had the other stations of the prophets, such as the chosenness of Adam, the intimate discourse of Moses, and the bosom friendship of Abraham. But he went beyond them in that God took him as Habib, that is, his lover and his beloved. Muhammad's inheritors follow in his path. Now, notice that Ibn Arabi says that the station of love is specific to the Mohammedans. This does not mean the Muslims. In Ibn Arabi's vocabulary, the Mohammedans are the perfect human beings par excellence, those who stand in the highest station of spiritual perfection, a station that was achieved only by the Prophet himself and a few of his great followers, and among others, Jesus. He mentions some prophets also. Ibn Arabi commonly says that they stood 
in the station of no station, maqam la maqam, meaning that they achieved union with God, thus transcending all the stations on the path to God, all the individual perfections that human beings can realize. Their station is one that embraces every possible human perfection that is every possible manifestation of divine perfection. Now, it is worth noting here, since I'm pointing to, to our hit, the history, that Ibn Arabi was not the first person to talk about the station of no station. I was delighted to discover this. I thought he was the first one uh, to talk about this. A hundred years earlier, Sama'ani had explained that the prophet stands in the station of stationlessness, using the Persian Arabic compound word maqami bi maqami. A very nice translation of maqam la maqam. Maqami bi maqami, for those of you who know Persian. Samani wrote, for example, on the night of the Mi'raj, when Muhammad you know, rose to heaven, on the night of the Mi'raj, Muhammad was made to pass over all the stations so that he would be higher than everyone else. Thus, they would all be seeking his station, and he would be fleeing from their stations. When he was taken through all the stations, nothing was left but stationlessness. And this is the attribute of the real. He pulled up the ropes of his secret course tent such that he was gazing at the real, not at the station. All the creatures were gazing at the station, but he was gazing at the real. Now, as for Rumi, he does not mention the station of no station explicitly, but he often alludes to it. Um, take, for example, the following quatrain. I chose it because it appears on the website in the announcement for my talk. We have two quotations, one the famous line on love, and one a line, I was quite surprised to read it because it doesn't sound like Rumi to me at all. It took me an hour to trace it down and figure out what, what this is. The verse reads, it's by one of these you know, books that get published. Be certain that in the religion of love there are no believers and unbelievers. Love embraces all. That's what it says on the website and that's what it says in the book from which it's derived. And if you do religion of love, a quick search, you'll find that very fast. Now, the actual Persian text is quite different from what we read. We can see that, in fact, Ibn Arabi is talking about the station of union, where all differentiation has been transcended. Let me read the translation of the original. This is, this is word for word, the Persian text, not, you know, not spinning a dream. Know for certain that the lover is not a Muslim. He's a Mohammedan, right? according to Ibn Arabi. In the religion of love, there is no unbelief or faith. In love, there is neither body, nor intellect, nor heart, nor spirit. Notice these are, these are this is a big discussion in Sufism about the levels of our of the microcosm, our interior being, beginning with body and rising up. Sometimes they talk about seven subtleties, whatever. This is what Rumi is referring to, and there's a long history of this. Samani, Mebudi, they all talk about this. In love there is neither body, nor intellect, nor heart, nor spirit. If someone has not become like this, he is not that. That is, he is not a lover. So, a true lover has transcended all of the all of the stations, which include faith and unbelief, Islam, and so on. A true lover is one with God. It doesn't, anyway, uh, I could go off a lot, in a lot of directions, but let me just read my text so I don't get distracted. <laughs> a great deal more could be said about Ibn Arabi's poem and his commentary on it, not to mention many supporting passages from his other books. Let me simply summarize by saying that Ibn Arabi's religion of love is not quite what most people imagine it to be. It certainly implies openness to the beauty of God's creation along with love and compassion 
for all of God's creatures. But more than anything else, it is a program of action. That of putting the sunna into practice on the three basic levels that are discussed in classical Sufism. And for example, are described by Rumi in the prose introduction to book five of the Masnavi. These are the sharia, the shariat, as the Persians say, which is the revealed law, the tariqa, which is the path of discipline and struggle as codified by the Sufi teachers, and the haqiqa, or the realization of union with the divine reality itself. Now finally, since it's supposed to be out love, and I've got into some of that dry theorizing that uh, perhaps uh, is not as appropriate as it might be. Let me just quote one of Rumi's ghazals, um, because uh, it's a nice ghazal in that he, he suggests why the religion of love is really quite different from the past that all the rest of us are following. Off with you. Know that the lover's religion is contrary to other ways. Falsehood from the beloved are better than truth and beautiful doing. The unthinkable for him is the actual state. Chastisement is the reward. All of his wrongdoing is justice. All of his slander is equity. His harshness is soft. His synagogue is the Kaaba. A thorn from the heart ravisher is sweeter than roses and basil. When he is sour, he is more excellent than a house of sugar. When he comes to you annoyed, that is sweet kissing and embrace. When he says to you, by God, I'm sick of you, that is the water of chizr from the fountain of life. When he says no, a thousand yeses are hidden. In the religion of the selfless, your family only when you're a stranger. His unbelief is all faith. His stones, all coral. His miserliness, all beneficence. His offenses, all forgiveness. You may taunt me and say, you've got a bent religion. I have bought the religion of his bent eyebrow at the price of my spirit. This bent religion has made me drunk. Enough, I will shut my lips. Continue on, O illuminated heart. Recite the rest in silence. O shams of God, Tabrizi, O Lord, what sugar you pour down. You voice a hundred arguments and proofs from my mouth. So, thank you. Thank you.